0: Father, I really thank you for today. It's an incredible moment to be here at the beginning of what we believe is a true journey that you've called us to, one that will change us because you are always working for good in our lives. You are relentless in your task and in your commitment to finish what you started in our lives, and that that is always an act of love. Sometimes it involves pain because you have to do deep surgery in our hearts sometimes you take us through really hard circumstances to do that work but you're always working for good for those that love you and so we know this journey has already changed us those of us that have been on it and as we go forward it will change all of us but we also know that you're about recreating hearts of men and women and about recreating communities and cultures with the gospel and so we're just really looking forward to what you're going to do and we open ourselves up to it and today as we spend some time looking in your word we just ask you to teach us and expand uh, our vision of who you are as really the true head of the church and we want that to be true here we want you to run this church to be our head and so help us to today to look to you in a truly honoring way in jesus name amen okay so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 to start with we've landed on a verse in Colossians 2 that is our guiding verse as we launch this journey it has three real priorities and I'm going to I'm going to read this for you and then we're going to just review that and then back up and do some teaching in the first chapter of Colossians so we're in Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 and And seven, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. To us, the journey that God calls us to is to walk consistent with what happened when we first came to Christ. That began a new life in us, and as we have come to Christ... We continue to walk within the power of that and there's three basic pieces to that walk. The first is that we are to be rooted in Christ and for us the word we're using about that is biblical. We want to be a biblical people because the Bible is about Jesus Christ and he is the central character. He's the head of the church. He's building his church today. Uh, That's what Christ said he would do. We want this to be a place where Jesus builds his church. Today, church has become a cultural, organizational name. And so anywhere you go, you see organizations that refer to themselves as church. Some of them are. Some of them aren't really the church. See, because the church is not a name of an organization with a steeple on it. The church is what Jesus is building as the gospel goes forward, generation to generation, and people come into his family. So wherever the gospel is being preached, wherever churches are hearing the word of God and following it, you can trust that within that organization called the church, the real church exists. But where people walk away from the authority of scripture and decide that they're going to take a path that makes more sense to human reason, well, Jesus can't build in that setting. See, So we're going to be biblical. That's our first phrase. And... When we talk about biblical, it's about Jesus Christ, it's about the gospel as the central theme. And we're going to do that proudly, unashamedly. That's what Paul said, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God to salvation. It's the, it's the power that we have to see lives transformed. So we're going to be biblical. Second, strengthened in faith. The word we're using to describe that is relational everything that Scripture teaches is about what God wants to do in our lives and fully forming Himself in us is spoken in the context of spiritual community and relationships. We were made for relationships. God exists in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He created us to be in relationship with Him. He created us so that we are not meant to be alone as humans. One of the first Observations about mankind is it's not good for men to be alone. And that says an awful lot. Most women here know men can't be trusted alone. But I don't think that's exactly what Jesus meant. <laughs> Just happens to work that way. And maybe that's why men were created first. Because if women showed up first, they'd probably be fine. I don't know that it's a priority thing or an authoritative thing. It's just so men could go, yeah, I can't do this by myself. And God said, that's right, so I'm going to make a partner, a helper. Not a servant, a partner. Come alongside and complete. We're made to be in relationship with one another. When God calls us to himself, he calls us to his people. So we're going to be relational. Ephesians 4 is really the prime text when you think about how spiritual community contributes to what God wants to do in our life. We're strengthened in the faith. We are built up in every way into Him who is the head Christ. How does that happen? When we all serve one another and speak truth in love. See, it's a relational thing. It's not about what I pass down to you as though I am the only conduit that God can speak from. The pastor teacher equips the saints believe it or not, that's you. Turn to the person next to you and say, "You're a saint, You're a saint. You're a saint. You're a saint. Now turn to them and say it like you actually mean it. You're a saint. You're the saints, and the, the pastor teacher equips the saints. They do the work of ministry. And when we minister to one another, speak truth in love, bring the abilities that God's given us into each other's lives, that's when God can do what He wants to do, fully form us in Christ. So being strengthened in the faith is about relationships. So we're going to be biblical. We're going to be relational. And the third statement is overflowing with thankfulness. Now the first thought that comes is gratitude, right? So worship is good. We're going to be obviously be worshipful. But the key phrase in that statement is the word overflowing. It's as though the thankfulness is sort of a for granted. I mean, of course we're thankful. We've received this incredible gift of forgiveness through Christ. Gratitude, I mean, we don't have to work for that. It's the overflowing part. It's that our lives, our gratitude creates an overflow in us that results in abundance not just for us, but for people around us. It's the, it's the generosity factor. It's that God has given us so much that there's plenty. We are never without enough to both care for ours and to be generous in the work of God in the lives of others. It's generosity. Physical, emotional generosity is the, the spiritual partner of the generosity that comes from proclaiming the gospel. We live the gospel, By living lives before men of compassion and justice. And that's what gives us the context to have liberty to share the message of the gospel. So many people have been turned off by the gospel because they see a group of people preaching it who do not live the gospel. They live judgmentalism and condemnation. And the gospel comes to life when it's seen through our actions. So that means it's not just about generosity, it's missional. So if you're sort of a... If you're more of a emotional, if your heartstrings are more what drive your spirituality, then you can say we're going to be biblical, relational, and generous. If you're more of like a thinker you know, and strategic, you can say we're going to be biblical, relational, and missional. It's got sort of that AL thing at the end working, you know, so that'll preach better. But those are our, those are our priorities. But today we want to talk about what needs to precede that journey. When Vitt and I were newlyweds, we had the privilege of living in this beautiful little farmhouse in the dairy farm area of New Jersey. Contrary to popular opinion, there is a garden state in the garden state. just isn't anywhere near the New Jersey Turnpike. You have to go west. But if you go west, you find these gorgeous towns. And we had the privilege of, uh, as newlyweds, uh, both Vitt and I taught at a Christian school made no money and so one of the deals was we got to live in a the old farmhouse one of the uh, board members. Prior to our moving in uh, another couple that was in seminary uh, lived there and the house had become quite run down so that couple made a deal with the landlord that rather than paying their full rent they would pay half rent and then the other half they would put back into the cottage and they did a great job put new wallpaper, new carpet, painted, stained, resurfaced the cabinets, and, and uh, put new countertops. So by the time Vitt and I moved in, suddenly we both had a lot more class than we had yet to develop uh, at that stage in our life. At least, speaking for myself, I had no class back then. So we moved in and we thought, wow, we get to live here. It took about a week to realize we weren't alone in the house. Uh, there were three types of rodents that had moved in before we did. There was a a family of squirrels in the attic that also claimed the main central wall in this old farmhouse. And and what had happened was they they, they had taken some pretty cheap paneling and just put it on the wall in the bedroom that our headboard was on. And so there must have been holes in the wall behind it because we could actually hear the fur of the squirrels. It, behind that panel as we're laying there in bed, there were mice in the main living area. Lots of them. I mean, I could tell you a story about one that got on got into Vit's um, fresh made apple cake on Easter Sunday morning on the counter, and we walked in and saw it, and Vit screamed and it looked up at Vit. <laughs> and it turned and kept eating the apple cake. I mean, that's how good her apple cake is. But it also tells you that the mouse said, oh, we have visitors. (laughs) They just started eating. In the basement, there were rats. So this place that we thought was just going to be perfect for us to live in was a mess. What happened? Okay, if you actually pause to go and look at it structurally, instead of the way a seminary couple would look at a house, which is basically, let's fix it up. Wallpaper, carpet. See, that's what they did. They spent a fortune on aesthetics. But if any of our guys here that are in construction went and looked at the house, they might have questioned if it was worth doing the effort. Cuz that old stone foundation was falling apart. You could come in, you could put your fist right through big gaps where the the what am I talking about? The mortar, thank you, Bill. The mortar had just worn out. Nobody bothered fixing it. Go around the back of the house, there was this giant hole in the eave that Mr. and Mrs. Squirrel had put a welcome sign on. Here's my point. This couple, meaning well, based on what they knew to do, did the best they could, and cosmetically you walked in and said, this is awesome. But the house was barely livable because the foundation wasn't right. So here we are, we get to start from scratch. So as we do that, what we want to do is to make sure our foundation is right. So, you know, a lot of people, when you start talking about a church, what do we think about? Well, what's their style of music? Can I dress casual or formal? How, how many times? Are we going to take communion every week or not? So when we have those conversations, I want you to think to yourself, wallpaper, carpet, that's the trimming Those things may be important because eventually they shape personality, right? Walk into each house represented in this room and you see very different tastes. And most of it good, I'm sure. Just different. You put your personality on your house. And we'll do that. Our personality will emerge. But that's not what will make us a church. That's not what will make us a successful church. What will make us successful is that we lay the foundation right. That's why these first weeks are absolutely critical. Now with that in mind, I want you to look back at Colossians 2 and look at verse 6. It's how the verse begins that I want you to notice right now. There's two little words that start verse 6. What are those words? So then. So what that indicates to us is this isn't the beginning of a thought, is it? It's the continuation of a thought. It's a little too early in the book to say it's the conclusion of the book, but it's sure the conclusion of something. Since this is true, so then, this is how we're going to live. You see, this is how the Apostle Paul does most of his writing. He always starts with some profound doctrinal Foundation. He lays the foundation well. And then based on that, he builds the house, the life that his the people were to live. And so, there is something that Paul has taught, out of which he's now saying, so then. Now, we get an indicator before we look backwards of what that is by the continuation of the statement. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord... In other words, that's clearly part of what he was addressing. Now, walk this way. <laughs> Sorry, an old song just came to mind. That probably would not would not be one that we'll close the service with. <laughs> All right, <laughs> but I mean, it has Boston roots to it. Let's admit that. Okay, walk this way. Um, thank you, Stephen Tyler. Okay, i got to get focused again here. That took me way out into the wrong place. Yes, walk in the path. Yes, back to Christ, following Christ. Yes, okay. All things become new. All right. So, what is it then that is about how we've received Christ that determines how we walk in Christ? We're going to go back and explore that. And in fact, over the next few weeks we're going to explore what to me is one of the most beautiful, significant passages about Jesus Christ in the whole of the Bible. So we back up to chapter 1. We're going to actually begin reading verse 15 in just a moment. But let me just kind of get you to that. Paul did not personally bring the gospel to Colossae. His follower Epaphras brought the gospel there. And so, as Paul writes, he's writing to them as having adopted them, but not really knowing them personally. So, when you read the early section of chapter 1, you feel that. He says, my heart rejoices when we hear about you. And so, he's kind of entering into their journey for the first time, but feeling like in some way he's still their father, their spiritual father, and now he's offering guidance. There are real challenges that the early church faces two significant heresies. Much of the writing to the churches in the New Testament is specifically to deal with these two threats that have come up to threaten the the church and to derail it before it even gets started. You could argue, knowing that God uses everything for good, that the good that came out of these threats is the Holy Scripture that we have in front of us today. Because you would, might argue that Paul and John, who in particular write against these heresies, might not have written so passionately, might not have explained so clearly the doctrines had they not been intentionally coming against some of these heresies. And so we're going to explore that a little bit as well and explain why certain words themselves emerged with the New Testament writers to denote who Jesus was. The two words particularly being Christ and Lord. Which, of course, we read, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in Him. The two heresies, real quick. The first one was the Judaizers. The Judaizers, to summarize, threatened the work of Jesus Christ the accomplished work of Christ on the cross. They were the first legalists that came into the church who said, you know, it's just not enough that Jesus died. It's not enough that forgiveness is found. If you really want to become a follower of Jesus, you have to become Jewish first. You have to convert to Judaism because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so, you know, you might think, well that's not so bad. We just have to, you know, observe the Sabbath, not eat pork. No, that's a killer right there. If I can't eat pork, I'm, I'm done. Barbecue is my world. I apologize to any vegetarians here, but I think there's a reason why God gave me these two teeth right here. <laughs> so, but the Judaizers came in and said, no, you have to do that. So, but but guys, listen, it's not just that you had to start obeying the law. If you were a Gentile guy and you ha- they had their way, you, you'd have to be circumcised. So just imagine that at our age. If you get back to the actual Greek language, when Paul talks about this particular heresy, he is really mad. And there's one passage where our translators are very gentle about it. But what he really says, this is God-breathed, inspired word of God, Paul says, as far as for those who teach this heresy, I wish they would just go all the way and castrate themselves. He's so mad about these people totally dismissing the finished work of Christ by now burdening again the people of God to the law. Wherever Paul went to start a church, when he left, Judaizers came in behind him and said, you know, Paul started it, but we've got more knowledge for you now. And so we're going to tell you the rest of the story. And so Paul writes back and you consistently can see him writing back and you can feel his anger towards these people that want to re-enslave people to some moral obligation. So the Judaizers threatened the work, the finished work of Jesus. Were it not for this heresy, I wonder if Paul would have phrased it this way. By grace we have been saved. Through faith it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man should boast. God used that to keep us on the straight path as well. The second heresy were the Gnostics. Whereas the Judaizers threatened to dismiss completely the finished work of Christ, uh, the Gnostics threatened our perception of the person of Christ. Because the Gnostics were heavily influenced by mystical Judaism an Eastern thought, which by this time had found its way into the Mediterranean world because of the opening of the trade routes due to the Roman world, due to the Pax Romana. Eastern thought begins to find its way into uh, Western civilization and that influenced began to help people think that there is a divine that is impersonal and that Jesus is part of that divine, but does not Himself fully embody that divine. One form of Gnosticism taught that what is physical in the world is evil, and only what is spiritual is good. And it dared to suggest that because of that, Jesus actually, if Jesus was fully good, which they believed, then He couldn't have been physical. So they denied the manhood of Christ, even at the same time while denying his full deity. So, here's the point here. This is very subtle, because they didn't deny Jesus. They dethroned Jesus. And those are the two primary heresies that we struggle with still today. See, Satan is best when he tells half-truths. Right? Did God really say... Let me tell you the rest of it." See, He knows. Come alongside what is true and just add to it, just derail it. And that's what both these heresies do. And still today, any place where somebody tells you, no, you get to heaven by how you live, that's the spirit of the Judaizer. And any time today you run across somebody that says, Jesus was just a good teacher. Or he may have been one divine among many divines, but he's just someone worth following. He's not the only way. That's the spirit of the Gnostics, which is why Scripture is still so relevant to us. Based on that, Paul begins to write. As is his habit, he lays the theological foundation. Let's pick it up at verse 9. so that you might have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now he's going to talk about the Son who He loves. This is the primary passage we're going to be in for a couple weeks. Listen to this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Now, that's as far as we're going today. Here is the main story of this poem. Next week we'll break it down as a Hebrew poem and you'll see the beauty of the construct and what the main truths are. But there's two stanzas. The first one is that He is sovereign over creation. And the second stanza teaches us That Jesus is sovereign over the new creation, over the church. Think about it. Sovereign over creation. The word for that is Lord. Sovereign over the new creation. The word for that is Christ. Just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, walk in him. Father, thank You for this central, this pivotal, this cornerstone of Your church, the person and work of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge Him as our Lord, as our Christ, our Savior, and we want this to be a place that not only honors Him, but is built on that sure foundation. And as we explore what this passage means in all of its depths in the weeks ahead, deepen our love for Christ. Our Desire to honor him, our commitment to letting Christ be at the core of all that we do. Help that to be the guiding light above all guiding lights, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good start. All right.